In the pursuit of our spiritual journey, we often encounter various influences that shape our beliefs and practices. One of the guiding principles articulated by the great Jewish philosopher Maimonides, otherwise known as Rambam, emphasizes the exclusive devotion and service to God. But what does it mean to truly serve God? And how does this principle relate to our contemporary world? Let's explore the Rambam's fifth principle and its implications, delving into the essence of worship, prayer, and the dangers of misplaced devotion. The fifth principle is simply that he alone is the one whom it is fitting to serve, to exalt, to publicize his greatness, and to perform his commandments. The Rambam has used four expressions as to how a person should relate to God, four categories of action to perform towards him, alone. The expression la'avdo has a dual meaning. The verb la'avod means to serve. The three-letter Hebrew root in that verb is ayin bet dalad, which we also find in the word avodah, work. That's in modern Hebrew. Avodah typically means a type of work that is sanctified when it comes to Lashon HaKodesh. So la'avod means to serve, and that can be subdivided into two types of behaviors. First, to worship, to perform actions, to do mitzvot. And that's the obvious definition of service, of serving God. But the second definition is to pray. How do we know that la'avod, which means to serve, or to work for, means to pray? The sages discuss this in the Talmudic tractate of Tanit, based on the idea that on the festival of Sukkot, a divine decision is made about rainfall for the coming year. A question is asked, at what point is it appropriate to include a prayer for rain in the standard daily prayers? Why is this a question? It's a very practical matter for Jewish people who are required to eat and sleep in a sukkah. And that becomes impossible if it rains. It's not a practical concern for Noahides, obviously, because they don't have a mitzvah to observe the festival of Sukkot. But there is a conceptual importance, even for Noahides. In the course of the conversation in that passage, the question arises, what is the basis for the idea that prayers for rain should be included in the standard daily prayers? The sages answer this question with a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, which says, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your hearts. Notice the juxtaposition between serving God and the idea of doing that with all your heart. From this juxtaposition, the sages understood that the service of the heart is prayer. Given everything we believe about God, it makes sense 
that when we pray, we only pray to Him. The 13 principles of faith, as articulated by the Rambam, are mentioned in a prayer, a hymn, known as Yigdal, which is printed usually toward the beginning of a siddur or prayer book, and also as a list of the principles themselves at the end of the morning prayers. In Yigdal, it's expressed like this, Rishon ve'en reshit l'reshito, which means he is the first with no second. So it's not just an ordinal first. It's first, last, everything in between. In the list of the 13 principles, the fifth principle reads, I believe with complete faith that it is only fitting to pray to the Creator, blessed is His name, and that it is not fitting to pray to anything besides Him. Here we can see that there are two commandments alluded to in the Torah, in the Ten Commandments, that are reflected in the language of the Rambam. These are, I am the Lord your God, which is Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, and you shall not have any other gods beside me, which is verse 3. If God is the only one, the first existence, the one who brought the world into existence and sustains it, then it must also be true that worshiping or praying to any other god contravenes this idea for two reasons. One, because what greater act of disloyalty is there than to serve anything else? And second, on a deeper level, if there is only one God, then praying to another or thinking that your help, your success, your salvation will come from somewhere else is doomed to fail. We have two verses in the Psalms that express this point perfectly. In Psalms 121, verses 1 and 2, we have the following statements. I lift up my eyes unto the mountains. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. A simple reading of the verse is that when a person is climbing a mountain and hopes for help from others in doing so, he casts his eyes to a distance to see which direction there might be people coming from because perhaps they will help him. That's the understanding of the Mitsudat David. But we can also look at the term mountain as a huge natural phenomenon that is stable and unmovable and dwarfs human beings. Powerful people are often compared to mountains or other great objects in the natural world. We tend to look to people like this for protection and help. We think if we can only get this person elected, he'll save us and smite our enemies. She'll rescue the planet. They'll bring an end to all hate and war. And then, of course, we find out that these were only campaign promises and that the only one who can truly bring salvation is God himself. The Rambam in this principle is not only saying that God is the only one who receives and answers our prayers. He also gives us the other side of the coin, which is that we also cannot direct our service or prayer at anything that is below him in the hierarchy of existence. What does that include? 
anything other than God. Obviously, the idea of a hierarchy of existence cannot even include God, because he transcends all of existence. He pre-exists existence as we know it. He's not part of a hierarchy. I think the Rambam chose this way of expressing the idea because it covers everything. Commenting on the verses in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, where we have the prohibition against having any other gods, the Malbim shows us that both the positive belief in God and the negation of any others are two sides of the same coin. You can't pry them apart. In the Aleinu prayer found in Jewish liturgy, we find the phrase, Hu Elokeinu Ein Od, He is our God, there is none else. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35, we find a similar phrase, Ein Od Milvado, which means there is nothing other than Him. The latter phrase takes it much deeper. Not only are there no other gods, there is nothing other than God. And this is the main principle of the Torah, the most elemental point that everything else is built on. God exists, and there is none else. If a person entertains the notion that there is some other force that he or she can depend on, game over. That is the most fundamental heresy. Now, sidebar, Chazal tell us that only the first two commandments were heard by the Jewish people directly from God himself at the revelation at Mount Sinai. After that, the experience of divine revelation was so overpowering that they asked Moses to receive the rest of the Ten Commandments. In fact, so overpowering, according to Medrash, that their souls left their bodies with each commandment. In, in effect, they died each utterance. So we can understand why they wanted to appoint a representative to talk to God on their behalf. And Chazal also tell us that these two commandments were articulated simultaneously in one utterance. This seems to bear out the idea that we see in Rambam, and echoed by the Malbim, that this is the irreducible element of faith, only God. If we read further in the Rambam's commentary on the Mishnah, where we get the 13 principles from, we see that he drills down even further. Who should we not pray to? And he lists angels, stars, planets, the elements, and anything made from the elements. Pagan religions, even when they acknowledged the existence of an ultimate creator, as Plato did, still had the perspective that all of these natural and supernatural forces, because they faithfully carried out their missions as agents of the divine will, also deserve to be shown at least a microcosmic level of reverence that would be shown to the Creator Himself. A king doesn't rule alone. There's an entire royal family, plus the whole array of ministers and advisors that the king appoints to run the affairs of state. In ancient times, if you showed any disrespect for the king's treasurer or the chief of his military staff, you would probably have been executed. 
These were the nobility, the second estate. You owed them respect because of their power and position. Also, it was more likely for you to have personal access to them than to the king himself. So they were your middlemen. You had no direct access to the king. Likewise, in these pagan religions, the creator himself had very little to do with the world, having delegated all of the power to the gods of the sun and the planets, and gods of rain and gods of wind and the like. Even today, we lobby our representatives. We don't go to the president. If you wanted a positive experience in the natural world, or good luck, or protection, you went to them, not to him. So, you don't pray to stars. Wait a minute. Why does the Rambam need to say this? Didn't he just tell us that it is forbidden to direct our prayers to anything lower than him in creation, which is everything? This seems really redundant. In order to understand why he needs to specify these four items, we have to look for the common element between them. Rambam tells us that these things are all designed and have no judgment or free choice, no agency over their actions. This despite the fact that the moon's gravitational pull directs the tide of Earth's oceans, despite the fact that a tornado can wipe out a whole town, despite the fact that a volcanic eruption can impact its surroundings, several orders of magnitude more than an atom bomb. These things are incredibly powerful, but they have no consciousness, no free will. They are simply expressions of God's will. Praying to them, serving them will produce no benefit whatsoever, and it will miss the point. Understanding why he needs to specify these four items is like understanding the role of a puppeteer in a marionette performance. Picture a skilled puppeteer manipulating a set of intricately crafted marionettes with precision and artistry, bringing them to life on the stage. In our analogy, let's envision the puppeteer as the Yad Hashem, as the divine hand of God. And just as the puppeteer controls the marionettes, God's presence is evident in the powerful forces of nature. These phenomena exhibit immense power, much like the graceful movements orchestrated by the puppeteer. However, it's important to recognize that just as the marionettes lack consciousness and free will, and these natural forces are expressions of God's will, they operate according to the laws and design established by the Creator Himself, just like the deliberate movements guided by the puppeteer. They're part of a grand design orchestrated by God's divine plan. So attempting to pray or serve these forces would be akin to mistaking the marionettes for the puppeteer himself. It would be futile to seek benefits or favor from these natural phenomena because they lack consciousness and the ability to understand or to respond. The true power and essence lie with God, the ultimate puppeteer behind the scenes. So we have two statements. We're not to pray to anything lower than God, and we are not to pray to angels, stars, planets, and elements. Since the second statement covers anything lacking free will, 
the first statement must include beings that have free will. Would it occur to us to worship a human being? Never happen. Well, human beings have always been very powerful. At one point in time, it was their charisma alone, and sometimes their ability to manipulate things, to give the appearance of power. But even today, we can say that human beings have become very, very powerful. Elon Musk and several others have succeeded in amassing an amount of wealth that outshines the GDP of entire nations. They have created technologies that have catapulted humanity to unimagined levels of impact. Last year, when Russia invaded Ukraine, one of their first moves was to knock out the Ukraine's ability to communicate, which is devastating when you need to oversee troop movements and you're fighting a major force. But in response to a plea from Zelensky, Elon Musk basically flipped a switch and gave Ukraine a communication capacity that could not be touched by the Russian forces. That's like one man being able to change the course of events in a war between two countries. Tucker Carlson, a cable news reporter in America, who was recently dismissed from the Fox News Network, decided to produce his own show, which was shown on Twitter. What's the common denominator? Of course, it's Elon Musk. It was just a 10-minute segment, and it had 65 million views in the first 24 hours of posting. Here at Sukkot Shalom, we get excited when one of our YouTubes gets 50 views in the same period. Very powerful. In the ancient world, kings and emperors were looked at as god-kings, manifestations of heaven on earth, with a divine mandate to rule. And not only did these leaders demand worship from their subjects, but people gave it to them. Is it any different today? We live in a world where celebrities wield immense influence and power. From movie stars to tech moguls, these individuals have become larger than life capturing our attention and imagination and admiration. However, when it comes to matters of faith and worship, it's essential to reflect on Rambam's teachings and consider the implications of celebrity worship. Rambam's fifth principle reminds us that it is only fitting to serve, exalt, and publicize the greatness of God. We are called to direct our prayers and devotion solely to the Creator, recognizing his sovereignty and exclusive role in our lives. This principle urges us to be cautious about where we place our faith and reliance. In the context of celebrity worship, which is now a phenomenon that has been studied by psychologists, okay, there's screening tests to determine a person's celebrity worship index. And we often see individuals idolizing famous figures, attributing godlike qualities to them. They become symbols of success, power, and influence, and many people look up to them as sources of inspiration and guidance, even if they don't know them. However, we must pause and consider whether placing such high expectations and reverence on human beings 
is in line with the principles we've discussed. While it's natural to admire someone's talents or accomplishments, not that you have to have either of these two anymore to become famous, we should be mindful of not crossing the line into worship. Human beings, no matter how influential or wealthy, are fallible. They are not all-knowing or all-powerful like God. Relying on them for salvation or expecting them to solve all our problems is a misplaced trust that goes against the very essence of belief in one God. And moreover, celebrity worship can lead to a distorted sense of reality. We often see individuals investing their time, energy, and even financial resources into following the lives of celebrities, idolizing their every move. This excessive focus on the lives of others can detract from our own personal growth and spiritual connection with the divine. In a sense, celebrity worship can be seen as a distraction from the true source of fulfillment and salvation. Instead of directing our prayers and service towards the Creator, we may find ourselves seeking validation and inspiration from those who are themselves seeking meaning and purpose in their own lives, and also from people who may not actually possess any real talent and who don't have anything to say or whose lives are a complete mess, as many a celebrities is. So what can we take away from all this? It's important to strike a balance in our admiration for celebrities. We can appreciate their talents and achievements, but we must also recognize their limitation as human beings. It's crucial to prioritize our relationship with God, ensuring that our prayers, devotion, and reliance are directed solely towards the one who truly holds the power to guide and to uplift us. The media maelstrom draws us in. We become obsessed with keeping up with the latest news, trends, and while we do this, we are making someone else rich while giving up our precious time. And we feel powerless in the face of the thought leaders, both the people whose influence is justified and the people who should just stuff it. We sacrifice ourselves on the altars of the news cycle or our Instagram feeds. Does that sound pagan to you? Let's review the fifth principle. Exclusive service to God according to the Rambam. The fifth principle asserts that it is only fitting to serve, exalt, publicize God's greatness, and perform His commandments. This principle encompasses both the outward acts of worship, such as performing mitzvot, and the inner realm of prayer. By understanding the significance of this principle, we can uncover profound insights into our relationship with God. Unveiling the meaning of service. The Hebrew term le'avdo holds a dual meaning in the context of this principle. It encompasses the act of serving God, which can further be divided into two types of behaviors, worship through action and prayer. While the former is the more apparent definition of service, the latter highlights the importance of connecting with God through heartfelt prayer. Discovering the basis of prayer. But how do we know that la'avod, meaning to serve or to work for, also encompasses the act of prayer? We saw that the sages of the Talmud delved into this question, particularly concerning the inclusion of prayers for rain in daily prayers. By examining the verse from Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, 
to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your hearts, the sages draw a connection between serving God and the service of the heart, which is prayer. This understanding highlights the exclusivity of prayer directed solely to God. Then there was the prohibition of worshiping others, expanding on the Rambam's fifth principle. We'll find a profound connection to the Ten Commandments in the fifth principle. Two specific commandments emphasize the beliefs in God's exclusivity, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not have any other gods besides me. These commandments express the fundamental truth that worshiping or praying to other gods contradicts the concept of a singular supreme creator. By directing our prayers elsewhere, we betray our loyalty and deny the true source of salvation. And whereas in ancient times you had to show respect to the king's ministers, showing respect to the king's ministers in the presence of the king would have got you in really hot water. One of our sources is a chapter from 2 Samuel chapter 11, which is an interesting and complicated and controversial chapter. But basically, in the midst of battle, King David summons Uriah, the Hittite, and asks him why he did not return home. And he responds by saying, how could I return home when my master Yoav, who was the chief of staff for King David's army, is in the field, etc.? And because he referred to Yoav as my master in the presence of the king, he became liable to the death penalty because expressing someone else's lordship in the presence of a king is an act of rebellion against the throne. Now, there's also the futility of worshiping other lesser beings. To reinforce the exclusivity of worshiping God, the Rambam cautions against praying to angels, stars, planets, and elements. These entities lack the consciousness and free will necessary for meaningful interaction with human prayers. They simply won't help you. They serve as expressions of God's will, and they operate according to his design, much like marionettes manipulated by a skilled puppeteer. Focusing our prayers on such beings is akin to mistaking the marionettes for the puppeteer, missing the true source of power and salvation. Not incidentally, it's part of this principle. The Ramam also speaks at length about how we are not even to use these elements as intermediaries for the sake of becoming close to God. Now, we have implications in our contemporary world. While the Ramam's fifth principle primarily emphasizes the exclusive service to God, it also prompts us to reflect on contemporary manifestations of misplaced devotion. In a world captivated by celebrity worship where individuals idolize famous figures and attribute godlike qualities to them, it's crucial to consider the implications of such devotion. Are we inadvertently replacing our devotion to God with the admiration of fallible human beings? In conclusion, in the Rambam's fifth principle, we find a call to serve, exalt, and pray exclusively to God. It reminds us that our prayers and devotion should be directed toward the Creator alone, recognizing His sovereignty and ultimate role in our lives. As we navigate our contemporary world, let's ponder the significance of this principle and its implication 
for the distraction and dangers of misplaced devotion? Are we staying true to the essence of worship and prayer? Or have we succumbed to the allure of idolizing lesser beings? Let these questions guide us on a path of true service and connection with God. Thank you for joining us on the Bear Sheva podcast. The podcast is proudly presented to you by Sukkot Shalom Beni Noach. As a global Noahide community, Sukkot Shalom is deeply rooted in the timeless values of Torah. We're dedicated to nurturing growth, fostering unity, and spreading the light of Torah to every corner of the world. For more enriching content and to be a part of our vibrant community, visit our website at www.sukkatshalom-benenoach.com. Remember to follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and leave us a comment with the topics you'd love to explore in future episodes. See you next time.